the best, the best way I can introduce this is to give you a picture of a play. So up on the stage, uh, there's actors and actresses, and you're watching this thing develop, and suddenly one guy steps to the front. This guy's Philip. And we're listening to Philip. We're invested in what Philip is doing. We're, we're all keyed in on Philip. And so when we look at uh, this passage in a right way, because this is the way that uh, Luke presents this, we're, all of our attention is on Philip. But there's also other people on the stage, like townsperson number two, who's basically just scenery in the background. But without him or without her in the background, what's going on with Philip doesn't make any sense. They enhance or they add color to the scene. And so when we read a passage like this, our attention goes to the main character, Philip, and we'll talk about Philip throughout this, but I also want us to focus on the other character in the scene, who's the Ethiopian eunuch, and to see what God is doing with and through the Ethiopian eunuch. So I called this, uh, I titled this The Divine Destiny, and throughout this passage we see the destiny that God has prepared both for Philip and the eunuch. <clears throat> so let's talk about Philip just a second. This, this divine destiny starts with divine preparation. Verses 26 through 34, <clears throat> which Mike read for us, tell us that Philip <clears throat> is told by an angel of the Lord to rise and go southward. Now, if you back up to Acts chapter 6, we find out, <clears throat> we find out that that Philip is one of the six deacons that are chosen by the church. So he's been in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and then we come to Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8, and we find out about the persecution that happens in the, tr- the church of Jerusalem. And because of that persecution, people are scattered far and wide, and Philip is one of those who's scattered far and wide. In the first part of Acts chapter 8, we see Philip taking the gospel to Samaria. And he has this amazing ministry where he gives the gospel and the Samaritan people are turning in droves to Jesus Christ. And they're getting baptized. And in fact, it's it's so unbelievable that the Samaritans would come to Christ that they actually call Peter and John to come down and check it out and make sure that this is a a legitimate reception of the gospel. Philip is part of that. He's the one who opened Samaria with the gospel. Peter and John come. Sure enough, this is a moving of the Spirit. The Spirit descends on the people, and Philip is there for all of this. Now, all of that to say, Philip has a good thing going. (laughs) He's in Samaria. He's preaching the gospel. People are coming to Christ. He probably is looking at, I got a good ministry going. Like, I could be here a while. I could teach the people. I could lead this new church. And, I mean, maybe in his wildest dreams, he was like, well, if I'm not here, then God will surely lead me to another populous city in which I can give the gospel to them, and we can see the same thing happen that we saw in Samaria. But I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure that Philip's 
wildest imagination did not include the Spirit moving him to a desert place on a road where there is nobody. And showing up in the middle of this place in the hot sun and saying, what am I doing here? But God was preparing Philip for that moment because we see Philip's reaction. What does Philip do? It says that he obeyed. He rose and he went. So on our stage, we have all eyes on Philip. And Philip is doing what God sent him to do. And this, on one hand, this is an application for us. When God prepares you, and he is preparing you, to step into a moment, to go to a hard place, or to go away from past successes, present successes, and move to somewhere where you're like, what is God doing? Our response, my response, your, your response should be obedience, without question. But, like I said, I want us to turn our attention from Philip for just a second, because God not only prepared Philip for this moment, he prepared the Ethiopian eunuch for this moment. And this one, this one's a little bit harder because we're so focused on Philip. We're so, our attention is so caught up with Philip, and we're thinking, man, this is amazing what God is doing with Philip. But no less amazing, no less amazing is what God is doing with the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, it says that he is from Ethiopia, and I realize all of our translations say Ethiopia, and we think of the, the literal country of Ethiopia. In fact, this, the place that he's from is usually called, in the Old Testament, it's called Cush, and we'll see that in a second, but it's a little bit north and to the east of Ethiopia in a place called Sudan or in the, low, the southern part of Egypt. Okay, it's still a long way from Jerusalem, just so you know, it's still a long way from Jerusalem. But this Ethiopian eunuch has been prepared for this moment. I just want you to think about how long did it take for this man to travel from Sudan all the way to Jerusalem, and then having gotten to Jerusalem to be headed back to happen to be on this road at this time of day to meet this man. Well, God didn't just, you know, Tuesday morning, wake the eunuch up and go, hey, I got somewhere for you to be at 9 a.m. Let's get going. <laughs> the Ethiopian eunuch, this is, this is months of planning. It's months of travel. Some, some commentators say it's up to six months that this journey would have taken. I mean, this is, this is a, big, a big deal to plan all of this, to, to go out on this journey, to end up on this day, at this moment, on this road. Let's say, let's say it took 129 days. The total trip was 129 days. And this eunuch is on day 57. I mean, think of that, traveling, going to Jerusalem, all of that, days one through 56. Could God not have shown up on days one through 56? But that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was to get the eunuch through all of those days to day 57 to have him encounter Philip at that moment. Now, we think of ourselves as Philip, and more, more, more often than not, 
if we're honest, we're actually the Ethiopian eunuch. We're the one, we're on this journey, and we're just trying to keep our head down and go day to day and just make it to the next day. We're just trying to obey God just for today, just so we can make it to the next day, because we're not really sure where this is going. We're on day 57 of 129. Some of you may feel that way in life or in your marriage or in parenting or school. You feel like, where am I going? You're too far from the beginning to start over and you're too far from the end to be like, yeah, I'm just going to throw in the towel. But God is using the journey to prepare you for day 57 when he's going to show up. So I had this experience this week in microcosm. Uh, My brother called me on Thursday night at 7.15 p.m. Uh, My brother and I don't like, it's not like we call each other every day or every week, maybe every six months whenever he picks up the phone and decides to call. And... Uh, if you know my brother, he has wide, I, how do you say this? He has a wide range of interests. And uh, so the conversation started in one direction, and we easily got off on another direction. And I say we, he easily got off on another direction. And he went to another direction. And by the fourth turning of this conversation, I actually, I was sitting with Davina on our bed, I had put the phone on mute. And I was laughing so hard because I had no idea what we were talking about anymore. Like, we're talking about a Persian king talking to his general and this thing that my brother had learned 10 years ago in military training. What does that have to do with me on a Thursday night at 7.15 p.m.? I, have no, I still have no idea, no clue. But after all of that, because <laughs> you're like, where is this going? After all of that, my brother said something to me that God is teaching him. And it's what, it's what I needed to hear that God is taking me through some of the same things. But, but my brother just he, just, he has a way of saying things. And he said, he used this one phrase, and I was like, That is why he called. All the nonsense about King Xerxes and all that, I have no idea. That is why I needed to talk to my brother tonight. I wasn't Philip. I wasn't the one giving out great advice to my brother. I was an Ethiopian, lost in confusion, not knowing what day it was. And God used my brother to give me encouragement. So where is God? He's in the details of the journey, preparing you, preparing me through all those mundane days to be ready to hear his message. But there's more preparation, just so you know. There's more preparation that God is doing than just bringing the Ethiopian eunuch on a journey. We find out that the Ethiopian eunuch has come on this journey for a purpose. If you look there at verse uh, 27, the end of 27, it says that the Ethiopian eunuch had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, you need to step back for a moment and realize that this Ethiopian eunuch 
probably shouldn't be at the temple to worship. He has a couple things going against him. Number one, he's a Gentile. As a Gentile, he would not be allowed to worship at the same level as someone of the Jewish race or a Jewish male when we think of that. His ethnicity would have kept him outside. But it's interesting that he's at the temple to worship. It's interesting, we're going to find out in a second, that he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah because this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, 11. In, <clears throat> in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Okay, the Lord's going to extend his hand to the remains of his people. His people are where? From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, that's the Ethiopian part, Sudan part that we're talking about. From Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. This is, this is the same scroll that the eunuch is reading from. And he's reading words that say, one day the Lord, the God of Israel, will reach his hand out to all these people, including people from my country. And so he's come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, even as a Gentile. So God has prepared him for that moment, anticipating the inclusion of the Gentiles. But there's a second problem that the Ethiopian eunuch has, and that is that he's a eunuch. So without too much detail, um, you can explain it later to those who have questions. A eunuch could never have children. And in the Old Testament law, specifically in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, not going to read it, but suffice to know <laughs> that eunuchs are not, are not welcome in the assembly of the Lord. So this, this Gentile who's on the outside because he's a Gentile is now also ostracized and on the outside because of past life circumstances. We don't know, we're not told how this came about. We're not told what his feelings were about it. All we're told is that he's a uni. So he's traveled hundreds of miles over months of time to get to this place with the encouragement from Isaiah 11, 11 that one day people from his nation will be included. But Isaiah goes on we read Isaiah 53 earlier, three chapters later in Isaiah, but also in the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to the eunuchs who are faithful, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In the same scroll that gave him hope as a Gentile, this same scroll he's reading, and it says to him, that he will have something better than sons and daughters, which he could never have as a eunuch. He's going to have an everlasting name. It's the name of the Lord. So this man who is far from God, and I mean that 
because he's kept far from God. But now he's reading the promises of being brought near one day. This man, at this moment, is prepared to hear how this is possible. But there's still more preparation. I should have warned you that number one is like the longest point of the sermon, okay? <laughs> there's more preparation that has, to, that has to happen. And it's the work of the Spirit from the very beginning. Because verse 26, we're told that an angel of the Lord directs Philip to go. And then all of a sudden, no more angelic messenger. Like, there's no more angel that directs him what to do. Instead, what we see is we see the Spirit prompting Philip to go and join the chariot. We see the Spirit catching Philip away at the end of, the, at the end of this passage. But my contention is that the Spirit is involved in all of this from the very beginning and even before the beginning. Who is prompting, who is prompting Philip to go join the chariot? The Spirit does. And when Philip gets close, what does he hear? The Ethiopian eunuch is reading, as they often did, he's reading out loud. What does Philip hear? Well, he hears the, the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 53. Did, did the Ethiopian eunuch just happen to stumble upon Isaiah 53 at that moment? No, I think the Spirit was directing and guiding what he was reading. And then Isaiah 53, which we'll see in a second, which we read this morning, who wrote Isaiah 53? Well, we know Isaiah did, but he did it through the Spirit. The Spirit was the one who even authored the Scripture that is being read for Philip to ask this question. And so here's, here's the, here is the uh, passage that he reads from Acts 8, 32 and 33, if you look at that. Like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And so Philip asked the question, do you understand what you're reading? Now, Philip, again, our eyes are on Philip, and we're like, oh man, that was a great line. Way to go, Philip. <laughs> Where did he get that line? <laughs> He got it from the Spirit. The Spirit led him to ask that question. So the preparation is not just Philip. It's not just the eunuch. It's the Spirit moving through all of this. And so when the eunuch voices the concern, who is this passage about? Is it about the author? Is it about Isaiah? Or is it about someone else? It's a Spirit-led question. It's a Spirit-led question. So can you imagine all of this, all of this preparation coming to this point on that road? This is like someone putting a beach ball on a tee in front of the Yankee slugger Aaron Judge and saying, let's see if you can possibly hit this beach ball. Of course, of course he can. I mean, this is, this is perfectly teed up for Philip and for the eunuch, but all of this preparation is not just for them, it's for what happens in this next moment. So what we see next is we see a divine proclamation, verse 35, the divine proclamation. This is what Philip says. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. All of this groundwork has been laid. 
Philip's preparation, Ethiopian eunuch, the intricate, extensive preparations that we've looked at, all of this to serve one purpose. That's the divine proclamation of Jesus as the Savior. The Ethiopian eunuch asked the question, who is this talking about? And, and Philip has the key. He has the interpretive key. When we read Scripture, we're often, uh, I mean, if you take the time and really think about it, often we're like, I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> and sometimes when we don't understand what's going on, it's because we're unregenerate. And the unregenerate part of us is saying, uh, I don't, this just seems like nouns and verbs on a page. But what gives the key to interpretation, what gives the key to understanding is when we come to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, G and so Philip introduces the Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus, and this opens up all of Scripture as Philip expounds on the good news of Jesus. Now, I realize that the amazing work that we saw in the preparation of this scene, we're in, we're in awe of that. And yet, verse 35 is the announcement of Jesus as Savior, and this is a, an even more amazing thing than what, than what we've looked at. Because, because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is, because of his death and resurrection, you now have the opportunity for this Gentile who's outside, this eunuch who is outside, this one who's told you are far off, now he's able to be drawn near. This is radical for Luke to record this. this is, I realize in our day and age, we're kind of like, of course. Most of us, I would say, I don't know any members of the nation of Israel in our room. Most of us are like, of course the Gentiles are included in the gospel. <laughs> but this is radical for this moment. But when we remember what we have been reading back in Isaiah versus chapter 11 and then chapter 56, this has been God's plan all along. Luke has been very good at this in Acts. He's, he's led us to this point of seeing that God's plan has always included those outside of the nation of Israel, those who were far off. In fact, uh, back in Acts 2, 21, Peter's first sermon, he includes this quotation from the book of Joel. And he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then Acts 4.12, Peter's third sermon, he includes this universal declaration about Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Neither one of those passages are exclusive to Israel. And so Luke is hinting at, he's dropping these, he's dropping these morsels for us to follow that Gentiles will be included. But there's even a more important reference because back in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says, here's your mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This Ethiopian who cannot draw near to God because of his ethnicity who's a eunuch and cannot draw near to God because of life circumstances, but he has a heart that desires to worship God. And the message of the gospel is 
Jesus has overcome all obstacles. He's overcome all obstacles. Now, I don't know each one of you personally, but I would imagine an audience the size that there are many who feel far from God. Some of you may feel far from God because you just feel out of place. Like, you look around and you think, uh, I don't really fit in. It may be socially, economically, maybe past circumstances that still affect you, or you don't feel like you fit in because you don't dress like others, or you don't talk like others, or you don't earn enough, or you envision a box, and whatever is inside that box, you're on the outside of that box. And this is the message to the Ethiopian, that Jesus is the Savior, a Jew, no less, who died for Gentiles, who died for the marginalized, the ones who don't measure up according to, good, to standards, human standards, and this is the good news. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, Paul picks this up and he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh of hands, remember that you Gentiles were at, this t at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us, both Jews and Gentiles, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, to the Jews. Paul is capturing in this section of Ephesians chapter 2, he's capturing this moment of the Gentiles being included, those who are on the outside being included with those who are on the inside. And it's because of Jesus and his work. So if you're feeling like you're on the outside, if you're feeling like your past or your present keeps you from fully enjoying who God is, Christ came for you. He came for you. But there's also another reason that we can't, we cannot miss, a reason that we do feel far from God. Uh, my dad used to say to me about, about feeling convicted of sin, especially when I was getting disciplined, you feel guilty because you are guilty. We feel far from God because our sin keeps us far from God. In fact, we're dead to God. We're dead in our sins. But this is the gospel, Ephesians chapter 2 again, earlier in the chapter, verses 5 through 9. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. 
sorry, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have, you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Christ died for all sinners, for all who fall short of the glory of God, for all who are far off because of sin. Christ died for you and I. So regardless of what you or I look like or act like or feel like, Jesus is the door by which we can draw close to God. And this is the message that Philip gives to the Ethiopian eunuch. And that we should embrace ourselves. We are acceptable to God because, because of Jesus. But this divine proclamation has to be acted upon. It's not good enough just to hear it. So what we see next is number three, divine regeneration. Now, uh, we don't have a lot of time for this, but if you look in your ESV, you look at verse number 36, and then you look at the next verse. The next verse is verse 38. You're missing a verse. <laughs> All right, the translators of your Bible did not leave it out by accident. They weren't like in a hurry and had to get this printed and out the door. Okay, there's a, there's a translation issue and the question is, uh, if you have a King James or a New King James, you actually have that verse in your Bible, and this is what it says. It reads something like this. And Philip said, verse 37, that's not there in the ESV, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, the reason that it's not there is... is a thing called textual criticism, which we don't have time to really get into. But suffice to say, it's, it's, a, it's something that uh, Bible scholars use to determine what is the closest to the original text. We don't have the original text. Just so you know, there's not some original Bible sitting in the museum of the Bible, which is a great place, but it's not sitting there for you to go and look at. We have a lot of manuscripts, and they take those manuscripts, over 5,000 different manuscripts, and they look at them. And they say, okay, they have a bunch of rules. How do we determine what is closest? Now, the two rules that are most pertinent for us are, does this appear in the earliest manuscripts? And verse 37 does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. And then which is a, diff a more difficult reading, which is kind of a weird rule? Which one is harder? If you took that verse out, is it harder to read than if you left it in? And it is harder to read because we have the eunuch saying, Here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip's like, let's go get baptized. It would be really nice if we had verse 37, and it would seem like a scribe inserted it to explain that, yes, the eunuch did believe. He did confess with his mouth. All right, now, I bring all that up because I don't want you to be confused when you read your Bible and you're like, where are the Bible verses? <laughs> They're missing, okay? It's a, it's a question, <laughs> but... 
when we leave it out, it doesn't change the meaning of what we're reading. It doesn't affect our doctrine, just so you know. It, it seems to be that a scribe said, I'm going to put this in here to explain how they went from, hey, there's water, to getting baptized. And that is that the eunuch would make this declaration. But we have a couple things that I think help us understand that this is okay to leave out because this is, this is the way that this passage goes. Philip, uh, Philip already spent all that time in Samaria and Jerusalem. In both those places, people confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and then got baptized. So I don't think Philip all of a sudden was like, oh, let's just skip to the baptism and not worry about the confession. I think as Philip told him about Jesus Christ, that the eunuch confessed, we just don't have it in the text. And so the expression of his confession, okay, the outward sign of the inward change (laughs) is that the eunuch said, there's water, can I be baptized? All right, now, we have another question, which is, why would the eunuch bring up baptism at all? I mean, uh, they're out on the road in a chariot. Like, it seems like a, kind of a, this non sequitur. All of a sudden, we're driving by water. Let's get baptized. Well, we have, a, we have a couple options. Number one, Philip has already discussed the baptism of Jesus. It's possible that Philip brought this up. In explaining who Jesus is and what he's done, he talked about the baptism of Jesus, and we know that Believers are to be baptized to model what Christ did, or Christ modeled what believers should do, and so the eunuch is like, let's do that. Or Philip mentioned that the believers in both Jerusalem and Samaria were also baptized, and so the eunuch is like, let's do that. Or, and I think this is probably the most likely, the eunuch as a Gentile, but a God-fearer and a temple attender he would have been introduced to ritual washings at the temple, used for purification. It's a practice often used in Judaism. And it's usually connected to repentance or a change from an old way to a new way or the the ending of a vow. So I was living one way, the vow has ended, I'm going to get ritually purified, and I'm going to go this new direction. And so I think... When we see the eunuch asking for baptism, I think it's part of this decision. I've been going one way. I've been a God-fearer, but now I'm a Jesus follower. And that's what we see worked out in the rest of the New Testament. Paul tells us that's what uh, baptism is. It's It's the outward expression of an inward change. So by requesting this, the eunuch is signaling that he's gone from an outsider to a full disciple of Christ. He is... He's declaring his regeneration. It's a divine regeneration. And so we see Philip joyfully, gladly, jumping out of the chariot and baptizing this eunuch because of the request that demonstrates the eunuch's faith. And so we see saving faith leads believers in obedience. That's what it does. Saving faith leads believers to follow in obedience. We often say that the first step of obedience is to be baptized. But each day is an opportunity for your faith to work itself out in obedience to Jesus. So we come to the end. We come to the end of this passage, the last two verses. And what we have is we have a divine relocation. We have a divine relocation. So Luke ends this account with something that catches our eye. What catches our eye? It's Philip again. 
It says that Philip, they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And we're like, whoa, this is like that Elijah moment where he's caught up in a whirlwind. And all eyes are on Philip. And, he, and, it, and importantly so, Philip is caught away. And he does find himself in a new place, and he fulfills what God put him there to do. He went about preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And then later in Acts, we're going to find Philip in Caesarea still preaching the gospel. But, he, but the divine relocation isn't just about Philip. The eunuch is divinely relocated. Now, I know what you're thinking. It just says that the eunuch saw him no more and, and what? And the eunuch went on his way. Well, where did he go? He went back home. He went back to Cush. And what do you think he did when he got back to Cush? It says that he went on his way rejoicing. Well, what was he rejoicing about? He was rejoicing about the salvation that he had in Jesus Christ. This Ethiopian eunuch is relocated just as much as Philip is relocated. God has reached down on day 57 of 129 to save this eunuch so that the eunuch can take the gospel back to what we read in Acts 1.8, to the ends of the earth. How does the gospel get to the ends of the earth? The eunuch takes it there because of this divine destiny that God had prepared for him. But our eyes are so caught up with Philip that we don't see what God has prepared for this eunuch. It's curious in Acts at this point why Luke would include this account unless it was to prove that the gospel went to the ends of the earth. We have the, we have the gospel reaching Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And after Acts chapter 8, we're going to have these long periods of how the, the Gentiles got included, but also how Paul took the gospel, but he takes the gospel to the known world. And so, I think that the Spirit is leading Luke to include this account of the Ethiopian eunuch because this is how the gospel gets to the ends of the earth. Now again, we picture ourselves in Philip's role. We would love to be the one whipped around by the Spirit of God, like here and there. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that amazing? But again, most of us are in the role of the Ethiopian eunuch. Did you notice he's the only one you don't know his name? We know Philip's name. I mean, we know Philip's name over and over again. We don't know this man's name. He shows up on this road for this encounter with God to have someone explain to him the gospel. He receives it. He rejoices and he fades back into the background. I would venture to say most of us feel like that. Like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I mean, there's somebody out there doing amazing things. That guy, that lady, I mean, they got all the stories about how God is using them, and I'm just, 
I mean, I'm on day 58. I've come to Christ. I've believed. But I'm, I'm just trying to make it to the next day. But we overlook that God reached into this eunuch's life and brought him to saving faith and gave him a purpose to go on rejoicing. So I want to, I want to give you some encouragement from this passage besides the things that we've talked about. But number one, God is working. We clearly see this throughout the passage. God is working, and he's working through people. He's working through people, and he's working through his word. Specifically, he's working through the message concerning Jesus. This is what we see in this passage. The joy is God is the one doing it. (laughs) Not that, you're not, in, not that we're not important, but God is, is working and he's pleased to sometimes use us. But when he's pleased to use us, we know that it's God working. <laughs> and he's doing it through his word. You're not there on your own. We're not left to our own devices. We're not left to our own brilliance. He's working through his word, specifically the message concerning Jesus Christ. And this should result in two things obedience to the gospel, and rejoicing to God. Let's go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes.